0: hi again welcome back to the scandinavian history podcast with me michael Trenkman. last time we saw how christian ii's brilliant plan to keep the kalmar union together by killing off anyone in sweden who'd be able to challenge his hold over that country backfired spectacularly the stockholm bloodbath combined with a serious tax hike and a prohibition against farmers keeping weapons around created widespread unrest, and when Gustav Vasa, one of the very few members of Sture Junior's inner circle to survive the bloodbath, started a rebellion, people flocked to his banner. With help from the Hanseatic city of Lübeck, Gustav Vasa managed to wrest Sweden away from Christian II, and instead had himself elected king of Sweden on June 6, 1523. We'll return to Gustav Vasa and his reign in a future episode, but today will focus on Denmark, because Christian II had been mighty unpopular among the Danish elites as well, because of his reforms and distrust of the aristocracy. So the nobles got together and offered the crown of Denmark to Christian's uncle, Duke Frederick of Schleswig-Holstein. Frederick invaded Denmark, and it took only a few weeks for him to force his nephew to flee the country. But just because Christian had left Denmark, that didn't mean he'd renounced his claims to the Danish and let's not forget Norwegian Kron. He was very much intent on getting it back. Episode 72, The Counts Feud. As we covered last time, Christian II, his family and closest advisers set sail from Copenhagen in April 1523, after the king had lost control over practically all of Denmark. By this point, his uncle Frederick had been elected king by the Danish nobility that Christian had never trusted and that now had proven that his distrust had been justified. The goal for the little flotilla of exiles was the Netherlands, but when they reached Kattegat, a storm hit the ships and they were scattered. One sank and many ran aground off the Norwegian coast. But after a bit of work, they managed to get the ships out to deeper water again and ex-King Christian and his entourage continued to the Netherlands where 15 ships eventually arrived in Antwerp in early May. The ex-King and his ex-Queen, Elizabeth, continued to Mechelen in what's today northern Belgium. There they met Margaret, the Queen's aunt, at whose court she'd grown up. Even though the reception was warm, Christian must have been disappointed when his request for military aid to reclaim his kingdoms didn't receive a positive response. The Habsburgs, who ruled the Netherlands at the time, were at war with France, and they didn't want to fund a second parallel war. A war with dubious chances of success, not to mention only the vaguest of benefits for the Holy Roman Empire, if they did achieve victory. Christian may have been disappointed, but he wasn't going to give up that easily. Instead, he sailed to England to visit King Henry VIII and to try and convince the English king to loan him troops and money to oust his treacherous uncle Frederick. Christian arrived in summer and spent about a month in London. He was treated very well and was fettered with endless parties and receptions, banquets and balls. Henry VIII said that he sympathised with Christian, he really did, but he couldn't give him any money right now. He was at war with Scotland and it cost him a hand and a foot he couldn't pay for a Scandinavian war any more than the Holy Roman Emperor could. So the former king of Denmark had to return to the Netherlands empty-handed. If, at this point, he was tempted by the thought of spending the rest of his life in comfortable Dutch exile, he didn't succumb to the temptation. Instead, he and his wife left the kids, Prince John and his two sisters, Dorothea and Christina, with Margaret and went to Saxony to try and convince the ruling prince there to help finance their war of return. They hadn't chosen Saxony at random. That German principality was ruled by Christian's uncle, so he hoped to get a positive response from him. But Christian was once again disappointed. His uncle even refused to meet with the exiled Danish royals. Perhaps he was worried that aid to Christian would attract unwanted attention from the Holy Roman Emperor, who was already annoyed that Saxony had become a hotbed for the reformist message propagated by a certain Martin Luther. And so he wanted to keep a low profile. Even though Christian himself was a Catholic, he was interested in Luther and his ideas. Now, when he was traveling through Germany, he stayed close to Wittenberg, and in November 1523, he and Elizabeth went to hear Luther preach. Christian was apparently enthralled by both the content of the sermon and the charismatic person who delivered it. But he couldn't take this interest in Lutheranism too far. After all, he was dependent on his brother-in-law, the very Catholic Holy Roman Emperor, both financially and politically. If he ever wanted the slightest chance of reclaiming his crown, he couldn't afford to alienate the Habsburgs, whose support he still hoped he'd eventually receive. In the meantime, he tried to buy troops with his own money. And by that, I mean the part of the royal treasury he'd managed to bring with him from Denmark. It didn't go very well. It wasn't exactly a secret that Christian had tried and failed to receive support from several crowned heads of Europe and that his resources probably were far from unlimited. In the end, he sent four of the 15 ships that had sailed with him to Antwerp back to Copenhagen with supplies for the loyalists he assumed still held the city, eagerly awaiting his return. But when the ships arrived at Christmas 1523, they discovered that they were too late. The city had yielded to Frederick and opened its gates to the rebels long ago. Christian didn't even get his ships back. Humiliatingly, they and all the provisions were seized by his enemies and sold. Still, Christian wasn't ready to give up. In early 1524, he managed to set up a meeting with a younger brother of the Holy Roman Emperor, named Archduke Ferdinand. Like all the others, he was sympathetic to Christian's plight, but... Again, like all the others, he couldn't offer any actual support. What he did do, though, was to write a letter to his older brother, the emperor, asking him to provide Christian and his wife, their sister Elizabeth, with a pension so they could live as befitted royalty. Ferdinand claimed that the Danish relatives lived in drab misery in their Dutch exile. But even though Ferdinand was interceding on behalf of Christian, the ex-king apparently hadn't left a wholly positive impression on the Archduke, because he suggested that the Emperor focus on helping Prince John, claiming the Danish crown, sidestepping Christian II. In the summer that year, Elizabeth went back to the Netherlands to be closer to the children. Just like her husband, she'd become enamored with Martin Luther's ideas. But unlike her husband, she didn't have the political sense to keep quiet about it around her devout Catholic relatives, and she got into fights with both her Aunt Margaret and Brother Ferdinand over religion. Christian stayed on in Germany, traveling around from court to court, trying to get various princes to lend him money and or support. As a side project, he also had the New Testament translated into Danish, just as Martin Luther had translated it into German. When it was done, he sent a copy to Elizabeth in the Netherlands. Soon thereafter, in the fall of 1524, Christian returned to the Netherlands and was reunited with Elizabeth. Margaret, their hostess, was openly hostile by now because of their openness to Lutheranism. Eventually, she'd had enough, and to get them out of her way and her house, she told the exiled Danish royals to go and stay at an estate a few kilometers from Mechelen, where they lived on a small pension provided by their Habsburg relatives. Even though they were given free housing, they struggled financially, and to make ends meet, they had to sell the remaining ships in their little fleet, and even pawn off Elizabeth's jewels. To make matters worse, Elizabeth fell ill only a few months after the move, and on February 19, 1526, she died, only 24 years old. Soon after his wife's death, Christian left the children with Margaret and returned to Germany in order to make yet another attempt to drum up support. He also went to hear Martin Luther preach again, and remained in touch with the reformer. But when push came to shove, Christian decided to remain a Catholic, quite possibly because officially turning Protestant would have burned his bridges with the Habsburgs, and without them, he could say goodbye to his chances of ever reclaiming his crown. For eight long years, Christian tried to gather support to go to war with his uncle Frederick, but in the end, his tenacity paid off. In 1530, the war against France was over, and Margaret had died. When the Holy Roman Emperor once again had disposable income, and the hostile Margaret wasn't there anymore to dissuade her imperial nephew, Christian finally managed to convince his brother-in-law to give him money and troops in order to take back his crown. With this Habsburg backing, Christian managed to raise not fewer than 6,000 soldiers and 25 ships, as well as the supplies needed for his campaign. The plan was to primarily focus on Norway, which Christian assumed would be easier to take than Denmark. Then, he'd use Norway as a springboard for the final attack. When he reached Norway, Christian would quickly take control over three key strongholds, Bergenshus Castle in Bergen, Akershus Castle in Oslo, and Bohus Castle in the southeast, close to the Danish border. On October 26th, 1531, the fleets had sailed from the Netherlands. It was a risky time to go sailing, but Christian had chosen this unexpected time of the year on purpose. He hoped to reach Norway just before the winter storm set in, so that when Frederick realized where Christian had struck, he wouldn't be able to come after him before spring anyway. By then, Christian hoped to have Norway securely under his control. To avoid Frederick's spies finding out what he was up to, the destination had been kept secret to all except a select few. Most people involved thought they were sailing directly for Copenhagen, they managed to keep the plan secret, but that didn't mean it was smooth sailing for the fleet, quite literally. Soon after leaving the Netherlands, the fleet ran into a severe storm on the North Sea. It lasted for several days, and it scattered the fleet. Some ships ended up in England, others in Jotland. But the fleet reassembled relatively quickly in northern Kattegat. Once they were back together and ready to resume their voyage, another storm hit. Christian just could not catch a meteorological break. Three days later, what was left of the fleet sailed into the Oslo fjord. Out of the 25 ships that had left the Netherlands, only 4 made it to Norway. Christian's force had been reduced to only 1,000 men. But those 1,000 men weren't completely useless. During a probing raid against Oslo, the mayor himself was taken captive and shortly thereafter, the city capitulated without a fight. Akershus still refused to give up, though, but the castle was held by only a few dozen men, and they had very little supplies. Christian took for granted that they would capitulate soon. Meanwhile, the peasants in the Oslo region, who remembered Christian as a friend of the little people after his legal reforms and his time as viceroy in Norway, declared their loyalty to him. And so did the Norwegian Council of the Realm. They sent a letter to Frederick I in Copenhagen, telling him Christian II was once again king of Norway. But they knew how fast things could change, so they hedged their bets by not affixing their seals to the letter. That meant it wasn't actually legally binding. Still, it was a threatening message to King Frederick, and he received it, loud and clear. For the first time in almost a decade, things were finally looking up for Christian. He'd taken Oslo with ease, and the locals had welcomed him enthusiastically. But the days dragged on, Christmas and New Year's came and went, and Akashu's castle never fell. In early 1532, Christian decided he wasn't going to waste any more time waiting for the inevitable surrender of the garrison anymore. He ordered the main part of his little army south, along the coast toward Bohu's castle. But he didn't bring any artillery, so when the commander at Bohu's castle refused to yield to Christian, he couldn't do much more than stare at the formidable walls and curse his situation. While Christian was away trying to capture Bohus Castle, reinforcements reached Akershus behind his back. When he heard about it, Christian turned around and returned to Oslo and started to negotiate with the commander at Akershus, trying to convince him to give up. The talks dragged on and spring approached. Soon it would be safe to cross the sea again, and Frederick would no doubt send a Danish fleet to deal with Christian. In other words, he was running out of time. In early May, His worst fears came true when a large fleet sailed into the Oslo fjord. At first, Christian thought, or perhaps hoped, it was reinforcements from the Holy Roman Emperor. But it wasn't. I mean, of course it wasn't. It was the Danish fleet, sent by King Frederick to put an end to Christian's rebellion. Christian understood that the jig was up, and when he received a message that Frederick promised him his freedom and a generous pension if he gave up, he agreed. In July, Christian sailed to Copenhagen to negotiate the details of the deal with King Frederick. Christian had been promised safe conduct, and he believed his uncle's promises. On July 24th, his ship arrived in Copenhagen, where Christian was promptly arrested upon arrival. Christian was locked up at Sønderborg Castle in southern Jutland, close to the German border. According to a later myth, he was held prisoner in a room where the door had been bricked up, and only a small hutch to pass food in and out had been left. There, the ex-king was left in complete isolation, slowly going insane, walking round a table all day with only a dwarf locked up with him for company. But that's not how it really was at all. He was a prisoner, true, but he had a suite of rooms at Sönderborg, and he could go wherever he liked in the castle and the gardens. He was even allowed outside, but he had to come home to sleep in the castle at night. He moved about freely in the town, and could even go riding in the vicinity. All things considered, Christian II was treated pretty leniently. Definitely far more leniently than he himself would have treated someone who would tried to rebel against him. So King Frederick managed to hold on to his crown despite Christian's best effort to snatch it back. But he didn't get to enjoy his time as king too long before he was up against a more formidable opponent. Namely, death. Frederick died in 1533, and his death triggered yet another political crisis. An even bigger one than Christian's failed rebellion. Unfortunately for everyone who was hoping for peace and quiet in Denmark, there were two candidates to take over the throne. Frederick's sons, John and Christian. Yes, another Christian, and you'd better get used to it, because from now on there's going to be a lot of Christians in the Danish royal family. Anyway, the Council of the Realm, dominated by the bishops, wanted John to become the next king, because just like most of the council members and certainly all the bishops, he was a Catholic. In the last few years, the teachings of Martin Luther had been spreading in Denmark, just like in Germany, and the council wanted to stem this tide of heresy as they saw it. The problem was that John was only a 12-year-old child, so he was less than ideal as a ruler of a country. His half-brother, Christian, was a fully grown man, and he also had some management experience since he was the reigning Duke of Schleswig-Holstein. The problem was that he was a staunch Lutheran, and had been so since the 1520s, when he'd also introduced Lutheranism in his domains. That made him an unacceptable choice as far as the Catholics on the Council of the Realm were concerned, So they chose to postpone the election of a new king until John had had some time to grow into the role they wanted him to take on. In the meantime, they, that is the council of the realm, took it upon themselves to govern Denmark during the interregnum. It was also decided that the bishops would be allowed to decide what would be preached in their respective dioceses, which in practice meant that they'd be able to ban the spread of the Lutheran message in Denmark. Everything might have developed peacefully from there, if it hadn't been for the fact that there was also a third option. To release ex-King Christian II from prison and reinstate him as king. Obviously, that wasn't something that the high nobility was keen on, since they loathed him and his economical, legal and political reforms that they had just managed to stamp out. But for the same reasons that the nobles hated him, the peasants and the burghers loved him, and many of them were tempted by the idea of Christian II returning to the throne. Agents working for the imprisoned ex-monarch were also doing the rounds in the country, reminding everyone what a great guy Christian had been and what a golden age would await them all, except the aristocracy, if he were to return to the throne. This propaganda effort, combined with discontent with the nobility running the country, harassing Lutherans, fueled widespread discontent. The spark that lit the fire of rebellion was the refusal, in January 1534, of the city of Malmö to expel some Lutheran preachers who were active there, much to the chagrin of the Bishop of Lund. The locals not only refused to throw out the popular preachers, but went ahead and occupied Malmö castle, arresting its commander. The rebellion soon spread, and the cities of Copenhagen and Malmö, as well as the peasants in northern Jutland, demanded that Christian II be released and reinstated as king once more. This demand was given military weight with the intervention of foreign troops, not least from Lübeck, that ever-meddling Hanseatic city now under Lutheran leadership. Lübeck was not only, or perhaps even primarily, motivated by religious reasons for intervening in what was developing into a new armed conflict about the crown of Denmark. As so often was the case, they were worried that the Danish Council of the Realm was once again entertaining the idea of an alliance with the Netherlands to counter Hanseatic influence in Scandinavia, and perhaps the Baltic Sea at large. The plan to get Christian II back as king was complicated slightly by the fact that he was still locked up at Sönderborg Castle, so he couldn't lead this new rebellion personally. Instead, that job was left to his second cousin, Count Christopher of Oldenburg. Because of that, the following conflict is known as the Count's Feud. Count Christopher was a Lutheran, but he was aiding ex-King Christian II, who was a Catholic, against the fervent Lutheran Duke, Christian of Schleswig-Holstein. I'm just saying that to introduce the notion that the religious conflicts that will plague the narrative for the next 200 years or so are rarely as clear-cut as they appear after the fact, when the victor sits down to write the history. The waters of piety are often muddied by other interests, usually the classic ones, money and power. Anyway, in May 1534, Count Christopher invaded the Duchy of Holstein, but he soon pushed onward and sailed for Zealand. Before the Council of the Realm had a chance to organize any resistance, Count Christopher, with the help of Lübeck, had managed to take control over all Danish lands east of the Great Belt Strait, which basically meant everything except Jutland and the island of Funen. He was eventually declared regent, acting on behalf of ex-king Christian, who was still locked up by his opponents in southern Jutland. In the regions controlled by Count Christopher, the nobility generally sided with the count, supporting the imprisoned ex-king. But in Jutland, the nobility sided with Duke Christian. So did the nobleman in Schleswig-Holstein, which perhaps shouldn't surprise us too much since he was the reigning duke there. But the Danish peasants still preferred the imprisoned ex-king, who they saw as their protector from aristocratic exploitation. And in North Jutland, they rose up against their landlords and the nobility in general. Already early in the year, the peasants had started attacking many manor houses and other properties belonging to noble families and the church. They had pillaged, burned and even killed members of the aristocracy as they went. The town of Olborg became the epicenter of this popular uprising against the aristocracy, and the Jutland nobility put together a force to descend on the town and eradicate the rebels before their dangerous ideas and rebellion would spread further afield. But maybe the noblemen sent to stop the rebels underestimated their opponents, because they were soundly beaten, and as the aristocratic army withdrew from Olborg, they left many of their comrades dead in the field. The unexpected ferocity of the peasant rebellion in northern Jutland scared the Danish nobility so much that they united in the face of the threat of the unwashed masses rising up against them. The council of the realm realized that they couldn't wait for Prince John to grow up and become a useful ruler. Instead, they decided to elect Duke Christian, king of Denmark, hoping he'd be able to save them from the wrath of the downtrodden. Even the Catholic bishops were scared enough by the rebellious peasants to back the Protestant duke as their new king. In the summer of 1534, the nobility of Jutland and Funen, the regions of Denmark not under Count Christopher's control, elected Duke Christian of Schleswig-Holstein king, and he agreed, becoming King Christian III on August 18th. In the fall of 1534, a new force was sent against the rebellious peasants in Oldborg, and this time... They weren't going to make the mistake of underestimating the enemy. Christian III's troops pursued the peasants, rolling up their rebellion, pushing them northward, back towards Olborg. On December 18th, the city was attacked and it fell. The victorious royal army showed the rebellious peasants no mercy. Some 2,000 people were thought to have been killed in the storming of Olborg and throughout the plundering of the city that took place in the following days. Christmas 1534 can't have been a particularly cheerful time for the surviving population. The leader of the peasant uprising in Jutland was wounded in the fighting, but still managed to slip away in the chaos surrounding the storming of the city. But he didn't get far. He was recognized by a peasant afterward and handed over to the royal army. He was later sentenced to death and executed. So the new king had managed to eliminate the threat of the peasant rebellion in Jutland. An added bonus to now having a leader who knew how to run a country and how to manage a military campaign, was that Christian III would be able to bring in help from abroad in his fight against Count Christopher. The new king was married to Dorothea of Saxe-Lauenburg, and that made him the brother-in-law of none other than King Gustav Vasa of Sweden, whose acquaintance we made in the last episode when he broke away Sweden from Denmark and the Kalmar Union. King Gustav of Sweden was more than happy to assist his brother-in-law against his old nemesis, ex-King Christian the Tyrant, and so he agreed to send Denmark financial and military aid. To that end, a Swedish force crossed the border into Highland and put Varberg Castle under siege, while they also took the opportunity to burn and pillage more widely throughout the region. The Swedes also invaded Scania, and as they moved southwest through that region, the Swedish soldiers burned and pillaged with a depressing predictability. The nobility in Scania was now divided between those who supported Count Christopher, whom they had recognized as their regent, ruling in the name of ex-King Christian II, and those who supported the new king, Christian III, and therefore welcomed the Swedish invasion, even though they didn't necessarily like all the burning and the pillaging. The commander of Helsingborg Castle on the Ersund Strait belonged to those who supported Count Christopher. And so the Swedish army, backed up by the Danish nobles loyal to Christian III, marched on the town, reaching it in January 1535. They were met by a first line of defense outside the castle walls. The defensive force was made up of soldiers from Lübeck and Malmö. These defenders were well entrenched and taking their line would have been a difficult and bloody task. But in a dramatic turn of events, the commander of Helsingborg Castle switched sides, turning the castle artillery on the defenders outside the wall. And then he swung the gates open to the Swedes. They thanked him by burning and plundering Helsingborg so thoroughly that the town was almost completely destroyed. After the battle at Helsingborg, Scania was lost to Count Christopher, who found himself in an increasingly desperate situation. In spring that year, the army that had crushed the peasant rebellion around Christmas was shipped over the Little Belt Strait to the island of Funen. There, the king's forces faced Count Christopher's army. On June 11th, the two sides fought the Battle of Oexneberg, where the count suffered a decisive defeat. After he'd won the battle, Christian III moved on to Zealand, which he also captured, with the important exception of the city of Copenhagen itself. Meanwhile, when the weather improved, the combined Danish and Swedish fleets, fought against the fleet from Lübeck. Losing their dominance at sea meant that Lübeck soon lost its will to continue participating in this Danish civil war, and in late 1535 negotiations about a ceasefire started. Those negotiations led to an agreement in January 1536, where Lübeck promised to butt out of the war, and in return they got to keep their trading privileges in Scandinavia. By now, it was pretty obvious to everyone that the Count's feud was basically over, and that the Count had lost. But the city of Copenhagen still refused to give up, and yield to Christian III. But in July 1536, after almost a whole year of siege, when the population, which was starving by this point, recognized that no aid would be coming from abroad, more specifically from the Netherlands, ex-King Christian's favorite foreign ally, the city relented and threw open its gates. The mayor, Ambrosius Buchbinder, committed suicide, but he probably needn't have done that because the victorious Christian III confirmed all the privileges the city had enjoyed before the war and granted amnesty to all his opponents. All in all, the Count's feud had been a great success for Christian III. He'd bypassed his younger half-brother and been upgraded from duke to king. The conflict and its outcome was also a boon for Danish-Swedish relations, which, for obvious reasons, had been strained for the last few generations. Also, Christian III's brother-in-law, King Gustav Vasa of Sweden, had every reason to be pleased with the war and its outcome. It's true that it had been a Danish civil war and Sweden hadn't gained any territory, but he had won other important things. He'd cemented a friendly relationship with the new king of Denmark, securing peace with the powerful Scandinavian neighbour. Since Lübeck had been fighting on the opposite side in the Count's feud, Gustav Vasa was now also able to turn on his creditors there, declaring that he wasn't going to honor his remaining debt to Lübeck that he'd racked up after they'd helped him win his own crown. He also limited Lübeck's far-reaching mercantile privileges in Sweden, leveling the playing field and enabling competitors like England, the Netherlands and the city of Danzig to trade in Sweden as well. Gustav Vasa went even further and accused leading German merchants in Stockholm of having plotted to assassinate him by placing a bomb in the cellars of St. Nicholas Church. Several leading German merchants were arrested, some were tortured and even executed, others fled. But the fact that they left Stockholm and Sweden in a haste shouldn't necessarily be interpreted as a sign of their guilt. It's much more likely that the whole plot was an invention with no basis in reality, a part of Gustav Vass's plan to strengthen his grip over Sweden at Lübeck's expense. We'll have reason to return to Gustav Vass's ruthlessness in a future episode. On a more macro level, the Count's feud brought about the Protestant Reformation in Denmark. Because of the fighting, the young Catholic heir, John, had been pushed aside by the nobility and even the church in Denmark. Instead, his Protestant brother Christian was now king, and he introduced Lutheranism just as he had done in his duchies about a decade earlier. To begin with, the new king arrested all the bishops, who were all Catholics obviously, but they were soon released from prison, to a large extent owing to their freedom to the fact that they belonged to the high nobility and had close relatives on the council of the realm, who didn't like to see their brothers, cousins and whatnot behind bars. But even though the king had let them out of prison, he did not reinstate them as bishops. But let's not get into that now. We'll talk more about the Reformation next time. Even though the Count's feud had pitted Danish nobles against each other, that rift healed pretty quickly. There can be several reasons for this. One is the fact that the war had showed them what could happen to aristocrats as a class if the peasants united against them. That insight had brought them to agree to elect Christian III king. Another reason is that the power and influence of the nobility grew from now on. It's always easier to keep the peace when everyone gets richer and more powerful. It's much more difficult to avoid squabbling when you have to fight over a shrinking pie. As usual, we also see some clever alliance building through marriage. For instance, the head of the Billa family, an influential family with strong Catholic connections, No fewer than seven of the eight Danish Catholic bishops had ties to the Bille family. He married off his daughter to a leading member of the Brahe family, one of the first Danish noble families to embrace Lutheranism. So the nobility came out strengthened from the Count's feud. The same cannot be said about the Danish peasantry, though. Christian III was harsh in his treatment of the rebellious peasants. Many of them only got to keep their lives if they gave up their lands and their rights to the king turning them from farmers owning their own plot of land to renters on crown lands, a considerably weaker and more vulnerable position to be in. The peasantry as a class became even more marginalized politically, as the crown and the nobility increased its power and wealth. Another loser of the Count's feud was the Kingdom of Norway. In 1537, a year after the war had ended, Christian III invaded Norway and incorporated the country into his realm, officially stripping it of its status as an independent kingdom as it had been in the Kalmar Union. In reality, though, Danish kings would continue to treat Norway as a separate political entity with its own laws and bureaucracy. The biggest change going forward was that the Norwegian Council of the Realm was disbanded, and national and foreign policy was now dictated from Denmark. The subjugation of norway was triggered by the religious reforms of king christian III. the church leadership in norway was worried by the spread of lutheran ideas and the protestant agenda of the new king so in order to defend catholicism the archbishop in trondheim started a rebellion in 1536 but the rebellion wasn't particularly well planned and the norwegian council of the realm was divided the archbishop even felt the need to have his main rival on the council murdered in an attempt to convince the other members to join his side. The archbishop also asked the Holy Roman Emperor to come to his aid and help safeguard Catholicism in Norway, if not in Scandinavia as a whole. But there was no help forthcoming from Germany, and when King Christian III invaded in 1537, the archbishop fled the country, leaving it open to Danish conquest. The Catholic clergy in Norway, most of whom were locals, were replaced by Lutheran priests under Danish control. But once again, we'll talk more about the reformation in the lands under Christians' control next time. I hope you'll tune in then. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, why not spread the word wherever you congregate with others who are also into Scandinavian history? Also, please consider leaving a stellar review, or at least five stars, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners and to support the show. Another good way to support the show is to purchase some Scandinavian history-themed merch in the Scandinavian history podcast webshop. I especially recommend something from the Odin's Lifehack collection. It's a line of merch with quotes from Hovemål, accredited to the king of the gods. You can get t-shirts, mugs, tote bags, and many other items with nuggets of Scandinavian wisdom, such as, wake up early if you want another man's land or life. Only fools hope to live forever by avoiding enemies, or speak useful words, or be silent. Links to these amazing products and more can be found on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page or on Twitter. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash scandinavianhistorypodcast. Like and follow the page if you want to shop or if you just crave more content at least vaguely related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry messages about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.